Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. I want you to go, first of all, we're going to look at a couple of scriptures to introduce this. This is kind of still on the same theme that um, the Lord had told me about before. And I don't know about you, but it just seems like times are hard. There's just a lot going on. There's a lot spiritually going on. I mean, um, Paul said it, in the last days perilous times will come. One translation says times of great stress and oppression will come. So it, it's part of the day and the age, but, but don't get the idea that we're anything special because on the day of Pentecost, Peter got up and said, you know, Joel, the prophet, said in these last days. So the very opening moments of the church we're also the last day. So we've been in, you know, the church, we are not experiencing anything today that the church hasn't experienced for the last 2,000 years. And, and you need to keep that in mind because otherwise you start thinking, oh Lord, how can I handle this? Well, we handle it exactly the same way that the disciples in the first century handled it. We do it by faith. But the, the first verse, 1 Peter chapter 4, Verse 12, this is the Apostle Peter, and he's, he's just gone through an exhortation in chapter 4 about serving God and displaying the glory of God. And he, let's back up to verse 11. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Well, that's pretty plain. If you're talking, it ought to be God coming out of your mouth. You know, Bridget last week made a statement, and I'm, I'm going to misquote her terribly here, but it was along the lines of, we need to be careful what we say so that our circumstances will begin to line up the way we want them to. Well, I would amend that slightly in that we are living the circumstances of our lives right now because of what we have said. Now, not everything that comes your way is your fault. We live in a lost world. We live in a, a world that's soaked with sin. Curse of the fall is real and it exists. If you don't believe it, go buy a house. Buy a new car. The new car smell will be gone probably before you get home. And, and you'll have to take it in and start getting it serviced. It's going to want to break down. I don't care what, what it is. Anything, naturally speaking, is going to start falling apart. That is the curse of the fall. And we are going to live with that until the end or until Jesus comes back and begins the millennial reign. But when we speak, we need to be speaking just what Peter said here. Let him, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. We need to be saying what God says. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then verse 12, he, he says, look, Remember, this is a continuation of thought. You're speaking the oracles of God. You're ministering under an anointing of God. And then he goes right in there and he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Because I can't count the number of times in my life and in other believers' lives where you look back over the last few months, few years, and you think, I have done everything that I know to do to live my life the way God wants me to live my life, and absolutely nothing is working out the way I want it to work out. God, this is strange. Well, that's the title of my message today, 
Ain't this a strange way to live? Yes, it is. Because sometimes it doesn't matter whether you're doing things, and, and I've said this before, there are only two reasons you will come under attack. One, you did something wrong and you're sowing the seeds that you sowed. Or you did something right and the enemy is attacking you trying to steal the word from you. So doing it right or doing it wrong, you're still going to get attacked. That's why Peter said, don't think it strange concerning this fiery trial that's come upon you. Just check your wrist, check your throat. Is your heart beating? If it is, you're in the middle of a war. This would be like taking some of our soldiers uh, in, in our men's prayer group. Joe Thompson's part of our men's prayer group. His son is, is a Green Beret. He's on active duty doing special forces, and he gets deployed to some really hot spots. He never can tell anybody exactly where he's going, but I guarantee you if he's a Green Beret, they're at the, they're at the really tippity-tip-tip -tip of the spear. So he gets dropped down in the middle of, and I don't know where he's going, but let's say he gets dropped down in the middle of Syria. Civil war. Syrians on one side, Russians on the other side, ISIS all around you, and here we sit with our little group right in the middle. And they look at each other like, why are people shooting at us? Well, if that's their attitude, it's like, duh, you're in the middle of a war. You're a soldier. You've trained for this. You have weapons. They are shooting at you. So get up, shoot back. That's what God's telling us. Don't think it's strange that you're getting shot at. You're in the middle of a war. You've been trained for this. You have weapons. Now the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't carry guns and knives to do warfare for the kingdom of God. But we do have mighty weapons for the pulling down of strongholds, for taking captive every thought that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. Just exactly what Peter said in verse 11. If you're going to speak, speak as if you're speaking the oracles of God. If your mouth's moving, it ought to be God talking. But how many times have we caught ourselves... You're talking, but it's anything but the word that's coming out of your mouth. All right, well, let's go to, to Jude, the third verse. And I want to read this in the, in the New King James first. And then I want to read Mounts' translation. Jude, verse 3. Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Mounts translates that this way. Dear friend, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, notice this is not something special to me. It doesn't work because I'm a preacher. I've said it before, I have an anointing to teach the Word of God. I can feel when I step into it, I can feel when I step out of it. And if I step out of it, I try to get back in it, because there's no place like being under the anointing. But when it comes time for me to be a father, or a husband, or an employee, or just a guy driving down the road trying to not tell everybody that cuts me off that they're number one, I don't have any special anointing to live my life. I have to do it the same way everybody else does it because our salvation is common to all of us. Everything that I have, you have. I am nothing special when it comes to that. We all stand on an equal footing with God. What's um, Jude go on to say? Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, nevertheless, I find it necessary to write and encourage. This word courage or encourage is a Greek word parakleo, which means to pull up alongside someone and urge them on. If you've ever seen a coach, um, especially with, with runners, 
I've seen coaches that, and you have to be careful because you can't run too much with them or you get flagged for trying to pace them. But I've seen coaches run alongside a runner and say, come on, you got more in you. You got more in you. Don't stop now. Don't quit on me. That's what encourage means. I come up alongside of you and I urge you on. That's what Jude is doing here. He said, I encourage you to carry on the struggle. This is, this is a, a, a wrestling match. Literally, the root of this word means to grab onto something and to lead it and take it where it's supposed to go. If you think of a shepherd, a shepherd has a couple of instruments that a, a Middle Eastern shepherd always had. They had the crook, tall, heavy stick with a big bend in it. They would use that to grab the sheep and pull them where they wanted them to go. They also had a club when the lion or the bear or the wolf or any predator came along, they'd pull the club out and they would go after him. When David says that I, I grabbed a lion by its beard and I killed it, he killed it with club. It's a short, and it's, it's a club. He literally got face to face with a lion and whacked it in the head and killed it. Brave man. That's what we're called to do. We're called to wrestle to get down and, and, and struggle with, with whatever is coming against us and grab it and take it where we want it to go. When circumstances or the enemy or anything else comes against us, we're first, first and foremost don't think, wow, this is strange. I thought I was doing pretty good. Well, you were. That's why you're under attack. But take that struggle and pin it down. And say, no, we're going this way. I'm going God's way. I don't care what it takes. I've said it before. You can knock me down and I'll lay flat on my back. And I don't care if it's a person or the devil. And I'm going to punch up. I'm going to do my best to get off my back. But as long as I'm on my back, I'm going to be kicking. I'm going to be punching. If I go out... And I die, the last thing I want to be on my lips is, devil, I'm still rebuking you. You have no power to do what you're doing to me right now. I'm going to go out fighting. That's what this word is talking about. But notice what we're struggling for. We're struggling for the faith. Sometimes we end up struggling trying to change our circumstances when what we need to be doing is struggling for the faith that's in us. And notice, it's the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. We are not trying just to get things to line up and be easy. Because they're never going to be easy. They might be easy for a week or two. But if you're working for God, if you're really pressing out and you're on the tippy tip of the spear like the, the special forces guys, then you're going to be in the middle of the battle. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It always will. But you have to remember and approach that fight with, with the idea that I have had everything delivered to me already. It's mine. I don't have to go seek out God and ask Him for something special because He's already given me everything that I need. Well, where's the proof of that? Well, let's go over to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to endeavor, for the last six months we've, I've been teaching on Ephesians on Wednesday night, and we've covered three chapters. Well, I'm going to cover those three chapters in the next ten minutes. If you look at chapter 1 of Ephesians, let's start in verse 3. The, the, Paul, in, in his letters, always starts, gives the first half of most of his letters, tells you absolute spiritual doctrinal truths. This is what God's done for you. This is what He's provided for you. This is how He has changed you. And then he'll end up the, in the last half of the book saying, okay, because of what He's already done, this is how you ought to be living. Well, we're going to look at these first three chapters and looked at what is this, 
what we just saw in, in, in Jude, what is this faith that was once for all delivered to us? Because it's not unique to any of us. It's common. It's the common salvation for all of us. Well, in, in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, this is the first thing that Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's already giving me everything. Every spiritual blessing. There's not a blessing that God has that He hasn't already said, this is yours. And yet, how many times do we pray, and the majority of our prayers are, God, I need a blessing. And I know there are times when He's got to just smack Himself on the head and look at the Father and say, are they stupid? And the Father looks back and says, I'm not going to agree with that because I don't want that to be manifested on them. But we already have it. In Christ, we have everything we will ever need. Everything you will ever want. Now, you may not be walking in it, but it's already yours. Look at verse 4. In the same, in this same way, the same way He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing... He has chosen us, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Because I've heard people say, well, yeah, God, God's blessed me with all that, but you don't know how I've been living, brother. I, I've had, I got this and this and this that I'm dealing with, and I'm just not walking very well. I'm not walking very spiritually. He chose us before He created the first Adam. And I'm not talking about Adam as in Adam and Eve. I'm talking about before Jesus said, light be and the universe burst into existence. He said, this is all yours, guys. And this guy right here, his name is Jesus. I'm giving you everything before I create the first bit of matter, the first bit of energy, the first bit of empty space. Before any of this is created, I've already given you everything you will ever need. And I've chosen you in Him. Important phrase right there. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. Now this gets into, and I've, I've preached on this before, and I'm not going to go back in because it's a whole message unto itself. There is a thing called predestination. And God has predestined every soul that has ever lived from Adam to the last person that will ever be born. He predestined them to be saved and to go to heaven. Jesus paid the price for every sin that will ever be committed, except for one. That one that he will not forgive is when he offers you that free gift of salvation and you say, nope, don't want it. That can't be forgiven. And that is your choice, not his. If you go to hell, it's because you chose to not follow Jesus, to not accept him, and to not follow him. And you made the choice. Hell was not created for the first human being. It was created to put a place to put uh, the devil and the angels that followed him. God never intended for anyone, any human being to go there. But unfortunately, a bunch will. Because a bunch will choose to follow Satan rather than following God. But he has predestined us to get born again. What, how? According to the good pleasure of his will. It's God's will for us to walk in His blessing, starting with the new birth and continuing and growing and growing in who we are in Christ and in the power and the anointing and the blessings of life. Now, verse 6, To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the beloved. We're already accepted. And I say that and I emphasize that because when the devil comes, he is going to come and just beat your brains in. 
and tell you you are no good, you're worthless, you don't measure up. Well, of course you don't measure up. Get over it. None of us measure up. Some, I, I had something good happen to me, and this has been a few years ago, and somebody said, Brother, you really deserve that. And I, I, I looked at him, I think, are you kidding me? I don't deserve anything except to live a short, miserable, sick life, die, go to hell and be confined there forever. That's what I deserve. But that's not what I got. Because of what Jesus did. Not because of me, but because I look at my life and I say, I'm in you. And I don't care what the devil says. You go back and read Zechariah. I think it's in chapter 3. The high priest Joshua comes before God's throne and Satan says, look at this guy, he's filthy. This is the high priest of Israel and they're supposed to have pure robes and he's there covered with manure. Why? Because when you kill an animal, they let go. Now I know, you all are city folk. I grew up on a farm, believe me. Butchering ain't pleasant. But we've, so, we've gotten so far away from the natural world that we think the sacrifices were just kind of, oh, everything was just kind of nice. No, it was a bloody, God-awful mess. There was blood everywhere. There were animals screaming. They were pulling stuff out and hauling it off and, 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 and throwing stuff up on the altar, some to burn, some for the priests. But God said... This is the price for your sin. And the way this sacrifice is, how nasty it is, how terrible it is, how horrible it smells, this ultimately is what I'm going to do to my son for your sins. And when he did that, my sins were in there too. Actually, my sins were what took him there. Our sins corporately. But when he came out of the grave... He was pure. He was holy. There was no sin on him. Why? Because he never sinned himself. And the second my sins were paid for, he wiped out the entire, every, every bit of power that hell had. He grabbed Satan by the throat, clamped a, uh, an iron clamp around his neck, grabbed him on a chain and drug him around hell and said, this is your champion and I have defeated him utterly and completely. And then he took the keys of death and hell. That means he controls hell, not the devil. Amen? Drop down to verse 13. This is, what, this is the common salvation we have. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Once we exercise faith, yes, Jesus paid the price for all my sins before I was ever born. But it's a conditional promise. I have to believe. And I don't just believe that Jesus exists. I used to, used to as a school teacher, it's fun sometimes. You just sit at your desk and you put your head down and you act like you're writing and you're not doing anything but listening. And the kids, you know, you're just an old guy. And I don't care if you're 20, you're still an old guy. You're just an old guy. You don't know anything. He can't hear anything. And you listen to their conversations. And I can't count the number of times I listen to conversations and I'd hear arguments break out over theological, deep theological questions. And in, inevitably it would come down to this. I believe in God. Well, whoop-de-doo. You believe in God? So does Satan. So do the demons. And they tremble. It's not believing that God exists. It's surrendering your life. And when you do that, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He comes in and He marks you. He says, this one's mine. But notice, not just that. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. He is the guarantee that he's coming, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, I don't have to deal with this body anymore. Doesn't mean that I'm not going to have a body, I'm just not going to have this body. This body, and I'm not bragging, I don't like the fact, but this body's been through 17 surgeries. 
just to keep me going. Several of them life-threatening. You either get this fixed or you're dead. Some of them just so I can walk and not be in pain 24 hours a day. I will say good riddance, glad to see you gone when this thing disappears and my resurrection body gets, and I get to, to go in it. Looking forward to the day. Because I've heard people say, well, I kind of like my body. I don't. I don't want mine at all. I want to trade it in on that guy, that, that 17-year-old, the body he had. Yeah, I know. That's a common, common wish. Verse 15, though. After Paul sees this out of the Ephesian, this church at Ephesus, then what's Paul's attitude towards them? Verse 15, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. When do we need prayer? When we start doing what we need to be doing. When we start walking in faith and walking in love. And remember, the disciples asked you, not the disciples, but the, the Pharisees asked Jesus, trying to trip him up. They said, which is the greatest commandment? He said, to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as, as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. That's Jesus' way of saying, from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Malachi, you can all sum it all up in this little phrase. Love God, love people. That's it. You can do that. You're completely satisfying all of the law. Now, you get into the law and you try to do that and you will realize, I can't do that. I absolutely, I tried it. I was a failure at it. It didn't take me long to be a failure at it either. I was a failure real quick at that one. I might have loved God, but I certainly didn't love my neighbor. I said the other night, my earliest memory is, is living on uh, right off of Bowman Field in Louisville, Kentucky. I couldn't have been three years old. All the kids came home from, from school. I'm there in the dirt with my cars. I've got a whole, whole city mapped out, roads, all kinds of stuff. And they walked right... One kid in particular walked right through my, my town and scuffed his feet. And suddenly this three-year-old came off the ground and I was intent on taking his head off his shoulders. It wasn't a holy anger. It was my flesh and I indulged it and I had every intention of just beating him till he couldn't move. Now the problem was I, I might have weighed 40 pounds and he weighed about 85. So my mama, thankfully, came out and rescued me. But before she rescued me, he knew he'd been in a fight. Well, that was proof positive that I can't love my neighbor. Now, I have improved a little bit, sometimes not much, but I have improved a little bit. But Paul says, look, when I see you starting to walk out faith towards God and love towards your neighbors, I know you need prayer. Well, we pray, get them saved, God, get them saved. And they exercise faith in, in Jesus, and we turn around and say, okay, enough said, you're born again. Now grow up instantly, no more sin in your life, we're going on to the next person. No, that's when we need to really start praying for them and really start discipling them and really come alongside to encourage them to continue the struggle. It's why so many people, you go through and read the, the parable of the sower. And keep in mind, the parable of the sower is not unbelievers trying to get saved. It's believers reacting to the Word. And a lot of them, the Word's stolen immediately upon hearing it. It's why you see so many carnal Christians out there. People that genuinely love Jesus and want to serve Him and have no way of doing it, no way of, of walking it out because they have allowed the enemy to steal the Word from them because they haven't mixed faith with the next step. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. This is Paul describing how we were before we got saved. Now, if you read the first verse, it, it says, And you he made alive, 
who were dead. The you he made alive is in italics. That means it's not in the original scriptures. You read the Greek New Testament, that, those words are not there. The, the translators put it in there because it's going to say that later on, and they're not wanting to discourage the readers, the English readers, too quick. But read this the way, they, the way Paul wrote it. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wow, thanks, Paul. That's real positive. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Not only were you dead, but you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Paul just sums up our, our condition prior to Jesus. You were dead, you were walking according to the devil's dictates, and you were walking, you conducted your life according to the lust of your flesh. And your nature was a child of wrath. Not a pretty picture. We, when it says we fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind, those desires are my will. And the, the mount says the, uh, we gratified the desires and impulses of the flesh. The, the word there, impulses, are your thoughts. Your thoughts and your will ran constantly towards what the devil wanted to do. He was in total control of your life. Well, why in the world would, would we be that way? Well, the best way to figure out why you are the way you are, go back to the book of beginnings, which is Genesis chapter 3. Let's go back and look at how this all started. Genesis 3, we're going to start in verse 1, but we're going to focus in a few verses down. Genesis 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the, of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. You will not surely die. In the, in the Hebrew language, that literally has the word die twice. It says, The serpent said to them, You will not die, die. The reference being there, you will not die spiritually and then die physically. Death's not going to come get you when, if you do this. Verse 5, and this is the temptation. The, 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 the manifesting the, the, the sin was eating the fruit. But the temptation was in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I've heard my entire life, heard that preached and say, well, yeah, <clears throat> what the devil tempted with them was, was with the knowledge of evil because they already knew good because they knew God. No, that's not true. They did know God and they did know God's goodness. But the temptation here was to be like God, being able to discern human good and human evil on your terms. Because you can decide. Because now you are the head of the universe. You're head of your own universe. It was tempting them with starting to, rather than depending on God, I'm going to depend on my own intellect and my own will and my own emotions to determine what's good and evil in my life. And I'm going to be the master of my own ship. To quote Frank Sinatra's song, I'm going to do it my way. Well, good luck with that. So what happened? Well, they bit into it and, and you saw two things come about. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees and of the garden. There were two things that followed their fall. I'm going to, I'm going to first of all, recognize that I'm naked. And I know that's not a good thing. So I'm going to figure a way to cover myself. And they picked fig leaves, which if you've ever cut any bush down, it only takes a couple of minutes for that leaf to start to wilt. And it doesn't cover much after it wilts and dies. And the second thing that, that manifested in them was fear of God. Had they just stayed naked and said, Oh my Lord, what did we do? And run to God and said, Lord, I sinned. Help. Things might have been different. Don't know that they would have been, but I know for their part it would have things would have turned out better had they just recognized I messed up and I'm going to run to God. Because God doesn't find out about your sin when you admit it to Him. He already knew about it before you. But the devil will say, Oh, you don't want to go up against Him. He, God is mad at you. He is PO'd, and man, when, he get, when you get in His presence, He is going to smack you down, and He is going to smack you down hard. Go back to Zechariah. What happened when, when Joshua the high priest came before him? The devil said, look at this man. He is a sinner. He's filthy. And God said, get him clean robes, get him a clean turban, and clean him up right here, right now in, in my presence. Getting into God's presence doesn't excuse your sin, but it does cleanse you of the effects of that sin and put you in a position. Now, it doesn't cancel every seed that you've sown. I've used the expression before. You commit adultery and somebody gets pregnant... God doesn't cease the pregnancy because you repented. Now, I, I, I understand the, the notion about young girls who have given up their virginity, be, you know, at least before God becoming virgins again. But I'm sorry, in actual point of fact, when you lose your virginity, you can never be a virgin again. You have committed an act that you cannot undo. Sin is with you. But Jesus can cleanse you of that. And before Him, it's as if it never happened. And let's face it, He's the one I want to please or displease. I don't want to displease Him. So if He says, I don't recognize it, I've forgiven it, you've admitted it, I'm cleansing you from it, I may have to walk through some natural circumstances because of my actions. You may regret them. You may repent for them. But there are still consequences sometimes. We can't always undo that. But I can undo the spiritual consequences and the eternal consequences by applying the blood of Jesus. Amen? Now, what did that do? Well, that brought in, and, and Paul just said it here. We read it in Ephesians 2. We, were, we conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Well, Paul also said in, in the book of Galatians, Chapter 5, verse um, 19 through 21, and this is Mounts' translation. He says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. We ought to know what the works of the flesh are. Sexual immorality. Well, that's obvious. But the Greek word there for sexual immorality is pornea. I mean, pornography is also. Because I've had people tell me, well, there's nothing wrong with viewing pornography because there's no actual sexual intercourse coming, going on here. No, you're polluting your mind and, and you're giving in to a spirit. In the same way that Paul said, worshiping before an idol, an idol is nothing. It's just a lump of clay. What's the problem with kneeling down before an idol? Because there's a spirit behind that idol. The problem with pornography is the same problem with sexual immorality. It's the spirit behind it. The spirit that you're selling out to. That's the lust of the flesh. He also says impurity, which is spiritual impurity. Debauchery, which means literally no restraint. You want to see debauchery? I don't mean to be critical. 
Because God loves these people too. But you go to a gay pride parade, you will see debauchery. No restraint. If it feels good, we're going to do it. And if it feels really good, we're doing it twice. And we will get in your face if you tell us we shouldn't. That's debauchery. Idolatry, literally bowing down before idols. Sorcery, the Greek word there is pharmakia. It's using drugs to get, try to get closer to God. Now, boy, if you want a spirit or, or a, a trait of the 60s, my generation, what was our motto? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The drugs primarily, Timothy Leary said it, take LSD. Um, what was it? Tune out, drop out, tune in, whatever. But they use drugs to get closer. They, people that use a lot of drugs will tell you, I have become a much more spiritual person. Yeah, but what spirit are you drawn near to? But notice these. Though I can say pretty much none of those apply to this crowd that I'm talking to. All of you can get in agreement. Ah, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. We don't do that. Oh, but Paul's about to just nail us right square in the head. Quarrels. Well, you don't know what they said to me. No, and I don't care. It's not worth fighting over. Strife. Not only do we want to argue about it, but when we're gone, we're going to keep the argument going in our head. Jealous. The Greek word there is zealous. We're going to be zealous to keep that argument going. We're going to have fits of rage, selfish rivalries. Not only did, did, did I get into a quarrel and now I'm into strife, but I'm going to call some people and I'm going to get them on my side. And we're going to start dividing up teams. Did you, do you know what that person said to me? <gasps> really? Well, that's horrible. And suddenly I'm on team A against Team B, because Team B really said a nasty thing. Well, did they? If you weren't there, you don't know. And if you were there, you know what they said, but you don't know exactly what they meant. Because sometimes what people say is not what they meant, or sometimes what they say is not what you hear. And I've been accused of saying a lot of things that I never said. More than once. And some of it I said it, didn't mean to say it. I misspoke. I meant to say this, and I said this. Sue me. I made a mistake. It happens. Dissensions. We're dividing up. This is army against army. That's the ultimate aim of, of, of the enemy to do that. To have divisions. That literally is the, the Greek word heresis, which is where we get our word for heresy. This is where the heresy hunters come. Well, you better get out of that church. They preach heresy. What is heresy? Heresy is, is something that I don't see yet, or I disagree in your theology. Well, so what? My theology is not perfect. Neither is yours, neither are the heresy hunters. But they do try to create divisions. And when they create divisions, they're in the flesh. Don't join them. Envying. Drunkenness. Orgies. Literally for orgies, because we always associate orgies with, with sexual immorality. That's not what it's talking about. It's talk, it can be that, but it's talking about reveling and rioting. You want a perfect example of this in the world? Look at Antifa. We're anti-fascists. They are the fascists. Because if you don't agree with them, they're going to bash you in the head and shut you up. That's fascism, folks. And that is an orgy. It's an orgy of violence. But notice this last one. And things like these. Paul says, this is your list, but it's not inclusive. Anything that generally fits with this, primarily you want to know how it fits? You're dealing with your emotions and dealing with your thoughts and your will. That's a work of the flesh. That's what we were. But thank God that we didn't stay there. Chapter 3, and I, for time's sake, I'm, I can't, I'm not going to go over there. But in chapter 3 of Ephesians, it's, Paul said, but even when you were dead in your trespasses, even when chapter 2 was a reality, 
you, Jesus, came down and, and paid the price for your sins, and you were born again, and not only did I, did I recreate you, but when Jesus was raised from the dead, you, you were seated with Him in heavenly places. At your absolute worst, He came down and grabbed you and exalted you as high as He can get. That's where we are. Why did He do that? Because in Ephesians 3.10... This is the whole purpose of that. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom, that means the many-sided wisdom of God, might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. God has called us into this existence for one reason. To take the devil and all of his um, associates be they spiritual or human, and declare the wisdom of God. When the devil comes and says, you're sick, you say, shut up, I'm healed because Jesus' body was broken for me. When the devil comes and says, you're a no good scoundrel, you say, well, I was, but I'm not now. Now I'm seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And you take any, any variation of that. And maybe you're in the middle of sin. You're right in the middle of the mud puddle. You have not only stepped in it, you fell down and you rolled in it. And you come to your senses like the prodigal son and you say, wait a minute. In my father's house, I don't have to be this. The second you say, Father, forgive me. I, I don't, I'm here, but I don't, know, I don't know why I did this. I just did it. I thought it was going to work out better. The minute you do that, suddenly you're clean. You're absolutely, totally spotless as if you have never sinned in your entire life. And that you know the devil has plotted and, and, and plotted and planned and he's got you there and he says, I got him. Now I'm going to grab him and squirt. Oh, man. I thought I had him and he called out to the blood of Jesus and now look at him. It's got to frustrate him. And that's declaring the manifold wisdom of God. Now, how do I work this out? A couple of ways. The main way, we saw it in, in 1 Peter 4.11. Every time I speak, I should be speaking the oracles of God. If I'm not speaking God's word, I shouldn't be talking. I ain't got much to say then. That is, that is going to be the first, the first result when you try to start walking this out in reality. You're going to find that you just don't have a lot to say, period. A lot of people have a problem with that. They don't like silence. But your mama told you, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything. Well, if I can't speak God's word over it, go to the 11th commandment. Shut thy mouth. Just don't talk. Why? Because you're going to end up in Galatians 5 doing a work of the flesh. Okay, then what am I supposed to do? Hebrews 1, chapter 14, speaking of the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? We've got an entire army of spiritual beings waiting on us to say the right thing so they can go do something. Um, um, pastor in, in, in um, Chattanooga, Ron Phillips, wrote a book on angels. And in, in his book, and this is a bad quotation but I'm going to paraphrase it. He said, the greatest unemployment um, situation in the entire universe is our angels sitting on their backsides because they have nothing to do because we're not saying anything for them to do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to stand up and say, angels, go do this. No, Psalm 103 verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, you His angels, who excel in strength, who do His word, heeding the voice of His Word. 
You don't have to necessarily command angels to go do a specific task. But when you make a declaration from the Word about your life or about someone else's life, you're interceding for them. Let me give you a perfect example. And this ought to be part of your daily prayer. Father, I pray for my pastor right now. You fill him, Colossians 1.9. If you don't know any other verse, you write that one down. I pray right now that you take Pastor Chuck and you fill him with the knowledge of your will, with all spiritual understanding, that he might have a walk worthy of you, fully pleasing you. What are the angels going to do? They're going to say, all right, we got our marching orders. Let's grab God's will and shove it in his ears. And... Can he reject it? Of course, we can all reject it. When God brings us things, we still have to receive them. But that ought to be our intercession. That ought to be our prayer. We ought to be praying it over President Trump. Let me give you a clue. The more you hate that man, the more you're called to pray for him. To the degree that you dislike someone, that is the degree that God has said you pray for them. Jesus Himself said it. Pray for those that, that use you and despitefully use you. So, you mean i got to pray for my enemies? Absolutely. And I guarantee you, you start praying for them and praying directly for them, they won't stay your enemies long. They won't. For one thing, they'll either depart from your life because they're tired of the angels messing with them, or they'll just surrender and start following God and they can become your best friend. Now, we have been called, and this is where we started, and I'm going to close this real quick. We were called to contend for the faith. Now, we ha- you have to know this. Faith is not the outcome of a situation. And the outcome that you get is not necessarily faith. Faith is the victory. When you start, when you look at, God gives you a word, and you look at that word and you say, God, this is going to be reality in my life, and you really put your faith on it, you won. Doesn't matter if you see the results or not. And let me, give just, let me just give you a very practical example. Doctor comes and he says, I'm sorry, but I, I got the diagnosis, and you have cancer. And it's stage four, and you're going to die. And you say, thank you very much. Is there anything you can do? And they say, nope, no surgical intervention. No chemotherapy can help it. Just go home, make your amends. And you go and you say, Lord, your word says that by his stripes I am healed. And I am going to believe you and see this, see this manifest in my life. And you die of cancer. You did not lose. Now, don't go off on a wild tangent and tell me, well, they got their perfect healing. No, they did not get their perfect healing. If, you're, if you die of a disease and we put your body in the grave, that's not a perfect healing. But your faith still is a victory. And when you get to heaven, God is going to look at you and said, you stood in faith despite the circumstances, despite what you felt, despite what you saw, and you died in faith believing I was your healer. And I count it just like you, were, you, were, you won the battle. And let's face it, it's His opinion that counts. Amen? That's all that counts. Are we in faith? Well, how do we do that? Jude, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now that has two meanings. One, it can mean praying in tongues. I've said it before. People are terrified of tongues. I've never understood it. Paul said, I, I, above all else, I wish you prayed in tongues. I pray in tongues more than you all. Those Paul's words. There's nothing frightening about tongues. It's an avenue to pray out God's perfect will in your life. But that also can mean praying according to the Holy Spirit. Praying out God's perfect will. 
When you pray out God's perfect will, then you are praying in faith. God gives you an inspired prayer based on His Word. And you pray it. God looks at that and says, that's going to build you up. That's going to make you stronger. Because let's face it, and this is my last two verses, going to quit. Hebrews chapter 11, a very familiar verse. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, by this faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The, the translation there, worlds, is horrible. If, if Paul had meant that to be like the earth, he would have used the, the Greek word geo, where we get geology. Instead, he used the Greek word aeon, which is everywhere else in the New Testament. is translated ages. Talking about a time period. And what he's saying is, the elders obtained a good testimony because the age that they lived in, their lifetime, they framed it, they adjusted it thoroughly by the Word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God came, let me just give you an example. God came to Abraham and He said, Abraham, you're my chosen man. You are going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham said, yes sir, I believe it. I'm going to put faith in that. Romans 4 says that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then Abraham framed his, the rest of his life by that word that God gave him. And he ended up giving birth to the promised child. Now, did Abraham live a perfect life? Oh Lord, go back and read it. The man screwed up worse than I do. And that's saying something. But he still framed his world. So what are we supposed to do? Well, you're, you're there in, in Hebrews um, 11. You back up. Well, go back to, or down to verse 39. It said, in all these, remember I said a minute ago, even if you don't see the manifestation of what you really wanted, you still win. Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 39, all of these heroes that he's listed there, heroes of faith, they obtained a good testimony through faith. They did not receive the promise. They did not receive what they were believing for. Because all of them, what they ultimately were believing for was to see the Messiah come in. And they didn't ever see it. But they had faith in it. And God said, that's a good testimony. That's my testimony. Well, I want God to look at me and say, you got a good testimony, boy. So how do we do this? A couple of ways. Hebrews 10, 24. I know I lied. There's more than two scriptures, right? <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's why God has told us, in fact, if you keep reading there, He said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, and even more as the day approaches. I tell you what, we're going to get to a day when, when people are, they're not, it's not going to be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They're going to want to be in church every night. They're going to get off work and run to the church and they're going to grab a sandwich on the way in and just munch on something because they're going to need it. The tragedy is, on September 12, 2001, churches all over this nation were full. People were terrified, and they ran to church to get an answer. But as soon as the terror went away, yeah, you know, I needed God when I was scared, but now not so much. We need to come together so we can stir each other up. And what if there's not somebody to stir you up? 2 Timothy 1.6, stir up the gift, Timothy, that is within you through the laying on of hands. There's nobody else around. Stir yourself up. Get in the Word and say, God, give me something to, to, to put my faith on. Believe me, you got a need. I guarantee you, if you're alive, you have needs. Well, if nobody else will encourage you, be like David, encourage yourself. 
The word is always encouraging. Just ask God, Lord, give me a scripture that I can stand on for, for these needs in my life. He will oblige. And I just want to encourage you. you ha- each one of us, we have been, or the, the common salvation has been delivered to us. And we need to contend for it. We need to struggle in our own life and say, God, I'm going to walk this out. And when you, when you do it, when you try and you fall down, don't stay down. It's not the falling that hurts. It's the staying down and quitting that hurts. A good man gets knocked down seven times. That means completely and gets up and goes back to it. I can't tell you how many times. You ask a businessman that's made a lot of money, most of them will tell you, yeah, I failed a bunch of times. I've gotten a lot of business deals that, man, I lost my shirt. Not only my shirt, but I lost my shorts too. I lost everything. Well, did you quit? Are you kidding? No. I lost my money. Now I want it back. So I'll get into another business deal. They keep going. But every time they fall and they get up and they, they, they learn something. Well, I learned not to do that. So you learn a little more. Spiritually, it's the same way. Lord, I tried this, I worked on it, and I fell down. Well, get up. Try it again. Learn what you did last time and don't fall down this time. Well, but I think God's just disappointed in me. He wrote an entire book to tell you that He loved you and that He's not disappointed in you. Get over yourself. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.